This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Hey, Com City. Uh, it's great to worship with you today as we celebrate the resurrection of our risen King Jesus. Keep in mind, we're, we don't just reserve that for Easter a couple weeks ago. Uh, that's a reality that we get to live in every single minute of every single day, and, and certainly the rally cry for why we gather, even virtually, and celebrate the risen Christ on a Sunday. Um, I just want to take a moment and start out, and I just want to thank you for your continued faithfulness to give. Uh, you've seen the ways that we offer to give before. We'll, we'll bring a graphic up and be able to show you ways that you can continue um, to be faithful and invest into the, to the kingdom of God, the, the family here at Commonwealth City Church. But I just want to continue, I just want to thank you for your continued obedience and commitment and dedication uh, to be incredible stewards and incredible vest- investors into God's kingdom. Like we have been able to keep everything running. Um, and, and most importantly, we've been able to keep and hold our commitments at, at the full capacity um, to places and, and partnerships all over the world. Um, and so it has been a, just a, an incredible grace and gift from the Lord um, that we've been able to, to remain in that and actually um, live, live in that abundance that he's provided for us. And so thank you so much uh, for the way that you join in God's mission to the ends of the earth and the way that that's resourced here in Lexington and in nations and places all across the planet. And so I just want to just take a moment and thank you for that. We uh, are nearing the end of our time in the book of John. It feels like it's, it's literally been four semesters. We started in August of, I guess, 2018. And uh, August, or fall, spring of 2018, 2019, fall, spring of 2019, 2020. We're finally nearing the end. We get into our last chapter of the book of John today. And, and that also means that we're nearing the end of our semester, which m- means a couple things. Number one, we're really excited this summer as we get to dive back into the Psalms and to celebrate um, a, a summer and a, and a journey this summer through the Psalms and, and, and through just the, the incredible um, words of wisdom and encouragement and really the hymns of Jesus that are in the scriptures. Um, so we're excited to do that just like we did last summer, to see some, some music come from that, to see some expression of, of who God is to us specifically come out of that. But these next two weeks, we have a, a, a great opportunity to do something also very specific. Today, we like to celebrate our graduates as they are, are would normally be walking across the stage in coming days. Um, certainly having to forfeit that this year in our coronavirus um, situation and scenario. But, but we want to celebrate grads, and there's going to be something for them at the end of our time today. And then next week, we get to celebrate moms in a special way for Mother's Day. But in the heart of understanding those celebrations that are rhythms in our calendar, graduation, Mother's Day, and multiple other things that are happening this spring, I also just want to pause for some lament. To you grads out there, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry you're not getting the moment of joy and rejoicing and celebration for all the incredible hard work you've done on this campus or on other campuses for the last three, four, five years of your life. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's something that's been taken away from you in this season. And that's not the only thing we celebrate this spring. Two 
um, that, or that we lament this spring. We also, to those, to those in our community and, and the extension of our community that we're excited to celebrate their weddings, um, to either stand and be the bride and groom or to even be bridesmaids and groomsmen cheering on their friends and family, uh, we're sorry. We're going to take a moment and just lament that with you and grieve that with you and, say, and give you space to say, you know what, it, this isn't the way we dreamed it up. This isn't the way we, we longed for it or desired for it to happen. And I just want to create some space that we acknowledge our grief and our loss of things like graduations and weddings and birthdays and even Mother's Day next week. You know, there, there, are, there are moms that, that are used to having the house filled or maybe even taking their family to grandma's house and all of those things could be have you know pause pressed on them this this year in this current season and even moms the way that you are normally feel celebrated um, I just want to take a moment and and grieve that as well and and grieve our ability to do that in the ways that we've traditionally done it and uh, moms we just want to say I know this is next week but a special thank you to the way that you have um, loved and served your family in a time that's probably different and unique than anything you've had to be a mother through before. And uh, just also press pause to, to lament even this season for the way that you are normally celebrated and the way that you are normally supported. Are there people that have it worse than not having a graduation or not having a wedding or not having an incredible Mother's Day luncheon? Sure, there are. There are people that have it worse. There's a broader perspective that we should probably have in understanding the suffering and the situations all across our planet when it comes to COVID-19 and dealing with this pandemic. But it doesn't lessen the loss you feel on what you've seen taken away from your life personally or from us as a family. And I just want to say that we're with you in that and we're going to pray about that in just a moment as we start our time together in this message together. And so we're going to be in John, the end of John 20 and on into to chapter 21 today. Um, so I'm going to read this text for us this morning, and then we're going to pray, and we're certainly going to pray even a prayer of lament for those things that I just mentioned as we start off. So John chapter 20, verse 30, um, down to John 21, verse 19. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others were his disciples, Two others of his disciples were together. Simon said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, well, then we will go with you. They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He then said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, 
for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, which Jesus laid out on it, and bread, which Je- with fish laid out on it, which Jesus had laid out, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went ahead and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. But Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my lambs. Jesus asked the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But Peter was aggrieved because he said it to him the third time. Do you love me? And he said back, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying all this, he said to them, follow me. Let's pray. Lord, we just come to you today and uh, we just thank you for inviting us into the truth of your word today. We trust that when your word goes forth, um, that it stirs affections, that it invites belief, that it moves in a powerful way. In fact, I just want to take a moment and pray today that on the other side of this video, on the other side of this message, whether you're watching on a device, somebody's watching on a device or in a home or wherever they have to be tuning in, Lord, that We just pray that your spirit move in a mighty way, that it move in the hearts of those that hear the truth of the gospel. God, we pray that your spirit call out and invite back um, people that feel like they've tread too far away, fallen too far away, um, had too much failure. Jesus, we pray today um, that your spirit draw the hearts of those back to you. We pray that it draw new hearts those believing for the first time, that their failure doesn't keep them from the love and the grace of an incredible, perfect Savior. We pray that. Jesus, we pray today uh, a prayer of lament, a prayer of grief, a prayer of loss over this season, um, the losses that we're enduring. Some of us have experienced physical loss of a friend or a family member, We've experienced being able to grieve and mourn in the way that we want to or desire to because of the limitations on funerals and on hospital visits. God, we just, we feel that loss. We feel that grief. Some of us have lost graduations, weddings. Some of us have lost birthday celebrations. Some of us next week might grieve what is a traditional Mother's Day celebration and not being able to have it in a way that we always have. We, we felt the loss at Easter. And God, we just, we just offer that lament to you. Jesus, we expect your peace to come rushing in to those that grieve, 
anything they're grieving or in any area that they've experienced loss from death or relationship to tradition or opportunity um, to a celebration that they had scheduled. Lord, we pray that your spirit rush in and remind us of what we have in you and bring peace to the unrest, to the loss in our hearts. And God, we just pray today that your truth go forward, that your message uh, resound, that we not stand in the way of what you're trying to communicate. We pray that your spirit preach that second sermon that gives our hearts eyes to see and ears to hear uh, the truth, that we may be a people that see you and believe in your holy and precious name. We ask these things. Amen. Amen. All right, well, I am excited to cover a lot of ground today. Um, we're going to be walking through the end of John chapter 20 and into, honestly, one of my favorite stories in John 21. And so uh, just like buckle up and uh, be with us for this ride. We're going to try to walk through this text a little bit at a time before we kind of zoom out and give uh, uh, some specific application. And so we're going to start in verse 30. Um, you've probably heard me quote this verse in preaching through John, I don't know, maybe 20 times. I know I've said it a lot. I've said it a lot around our staff meetings or our elder conversations and in conversations with other people um, that this is the main premise of the book of John. You know, for all of you uh, students that are used to writing these position papers or thesis papers, um, you're not supposed to include your thesis in the next to last chapter uh, or the next, you know, three paragraphs or four paragraphs from the end of your work. Your thesis is supposed to be at the beginning, but John's thesis shows up right here at the end. In fact, if we look at the structure of the Gospel of John, it starts with what we call a prologue, and then there's this body of work that takes um, all of Jesus' sign-based ministry, you know, healings, and, and it starts with the wedding at Cana. Um, we see the, the feeding of the 5,000. We see all these different mo moments where Jesus is giving these signs and wonders to declare who he is to an unbelieving world. And then the back half of that body of the book of John is Jesus teaching with these I am statements along the way. These I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. You know, all these different I am statements that we've talked about and discussed. And so you almost see this, this symmetry, signs and wonders, and then teaching and declaration of belief. He teaches on the Holy Spirit. He teaches on being sent in John 17. And the end of the resurrection chapter, John 20, kind of ties into a conclusion the body of the gospel of John. And that's what brings us to the last chapter, which if we have a prologue, we would have an epilogue. And so this would be commonly seen as the epilogue of the Gospel of John. It's a book about belief, but it ends with a story that's really a story of commissioning. And the truth be told, when it comes to verse 30 and 31, we could preach just these verses and be done today. Um, but then we would bleed over into our psalm series. So we're trying to wrap this thing up together today, and I think the Lord has some really good, a really good word for us today. Um, 30 and 31, verse 31 specifically, I want to draw attention to it. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, you have life in his name. If there's a verse you could hang on to in the Gospel of John, I would advise it. You know, most people say John 3.16. That's an easy memory one, and it's certainly an incredible truth. But to remember the 
holistic understanding of what this letter, what this book offers us as believers. It's verse 31. These things are written so that you believe Jesus is the Christ and you find life in no other name but his. But we aren't done there. See, that's the end of verse, the chapter 20. We get into chapter 21. If you're a fan of movies like I am, you probably like nerd out over an after credits scene. You know, like, I, I don't know if you're anything like me. I remember, I think it was leaving the Avengers and uh, hearing that there was an after credit scene and being upset that I missed it the first time through. And so now I like, if I go to a movie theater of a movie that I'm really anticipating, I stay until the final credits roll because I don't want to miss the after credit scene of a movie. I feel like it offers too much for our imagination. So if you've got your favorite after credits movie scene, this is the Bible's version of an after credits movie scene. The credits could roll at verse 31, but here is a little sneak peek at the continued relationship that Jesus has with his disciples. We're not done yet. Verse, tw- verse 1 of chapter 21 shows us the importance here. After this, so even after the body of work, and I'm so glad the Holy Spirit kept John's heart aflame to write these things. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples. Now, I, I don't know about you, but but I want you to picture like a movie scene right here. We mentioned it being an after credit scene. I want you to, to picture a, a movie scene. Um, you kind of see the camera. Maybe there's Jesus with his hair flowing, blowing in the wind, you know, wearing his tunic or whatnot on the shore. It's early morning. It's maybe just this silhouetted figure. And out in the distance are the disciples in the boat. They don't know that Jesus is on the shore. They'll talk about this in a few verses. But John paints the picture very quickly right out of the gate Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples. Now, the word reveal that he used here is really interesting. In fact, there's a book in the Bible that most of us know. It's called the book of Revelation. Um, It's referred to as apocalyptic literature. Now, when we think of the word apocalypse, we might think of the end of the world. You know, ah, the end of the world's coming. It's an apocalypse. Or we even use part of that word um, in humor, like a couple years ago when we got snowed in and it was the snow apocalypse, you know, like now is the corona apocalypse or whatever. You know, we use that concept of apocalypse as meaning the end of the world. But that's not, the word, that's not what the word apocalypto in Greek or apocalypse means. It literally means to reveal. And so the book of Revelation is the book of the apocalypse because it's a, something that's been revealed to John. I say all that to say that's not the word that's used here for the word reveal. It's not the word apocalypto. It's actually a word that means to clarify. Jesus clarifies or brings clarity to himself again to the disciples, and he revealed in later part of verse 1 himself in this way. So it's like in scene, we kind of see Jesus on the seashore, hanging out, hair blowing in the wind, dimly lit, just maybe a silhouette of his character And then the immediate next scene is picking up in verse 2. Simon Peter and Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two others. So seven guys were together. And Simon said to them, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. We know, we get that sneak peek that there's getting ready to be another meaningful encounter. But it starts with Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. Why fishing? Why does Simon Peter say, I'm going fishing. A lot of scholars and pastors think that Simon was returning to his old habits and his old comfort zones. If we know what's happened 
the crucifixion, he denied Jesus. We're going to deal with that. Um, But then at the same time was really eager, in the very next chapter, was really eager to experience um, the empty grave and and the risen Christ. In fact, he got to, as Steve invited us into last week, he got to experience the risen Christ in a way that Jesus just showed up in his living room. Like, we're led to believe maybe walk through the wall or walk through the door that not Obviously, death couldn't contain him, and nor could whatever first century security was, was happening on the door locks. Nothing could contain Jesus. So he had gotten to experience Jesus, and in some ways, he was doing what he was told. We, we read in Matthew's gospel that Jesus instructed his disciples to meet him in Galilee. And so we see them here in Galilee uh, awaiting Jesus But while Peter was where he was supposed to be, he wasn't being who he was told to be. Why do I say that? Because the last moment we have with Jesus and Peter in John chapter 20, as he is hanging out in his house, he says, he says to them, and he he breathes on them, and he says, even as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And that's his commissioning in John chapter 20. I am sending you. When Peter kind of resorts to his old way of life, that doesn't look like a sent person, does it? Doesn't look like a sent person. Man, that really resonates with my heart. That really resonates with me. We might have just experienced Jesus, but something felt different this time. And while sometimes I might do what I feel like Jesus tells me to do in his word, I recovering legalists, like keep the rules. Sometimes I don't live in the identity and the purpose that the Lord has spoken over me. Peter was in Galilee, but the point of this interaction is he was doing the wrong kind of fishing. Now, I'm not sure if it was frustration or depression or boredom that led him back to his familiar nets. But it is important to know that he wasn't so far gone that he resisted an interaction with Jesus. We pick up the story in verse 5, or verse 4. Just as the day was breaking, this is where we see Jesus enter the scene again. So the beginning is we kind of get this little vignette that Jesus is in this scene and there's about to be a meaningful encounter coming. Then it's cut scene. We go to Peter and the disciples as they prepared to go fish and even at the end of their their fishing it says they went out into the boat that night but they they had caught nothing and then it's just as day was breaking we now pan back to Jesus standing on the shore yet the disciples were unaware they did not know it was Jesus now why did they not know it was Jesus maybe it was because it was dawn and the, the sunlight or something might have silhouetted him to where his face couldn't be noticed or, or there was no defining characteristics. It's possible that in a new resurrection body, he might have appeared um, unfamiliar to them in the way that he once was familiar to them prior to his death and resurrection. But I think the most likely scenario is they were a long way away. Um, they probably didn't have any corrective vision at the time. And um, the sunlight did not paint an an incredible opportunity for them to see with clarity who was standing on the seashore. But he says to them, children, children, do you have any fish? Now, what's interesting about that vocabulary? This is for the first time in the Gospel of John, 
Does Jesus address the disciples in a familial way by calling them children? This, as I've researched this word, it's really one of the most intimate words to be able to say like brothers or family, like, hey, like whatever vocabulary you would use for your most intimate relationships, that's what Jesus colloquially was using here with the disciples. Do you have any fish? And this is really interesting because in John 15, we've covered this ground. In John 15, just a a few chapters before, he says to him, you are no longer servants, but friends. This becomes the moment where he, in his glorified resurrection, says to them, friends, family, children, I say to you, have you caught any fish? Now, we lose a little bit in our modern translation because have you caught any fish would probably be better translated to family, children. How's that working for you? Have we ever said that to someone? Like seeing somebody trying really, really hard to make a name for themselves or make a way for themselves or or to establish an identity and it's obvious to everybody but them that their efforts are just fruitless? It's obvious to everybody but them that that the thing they're searching for and hoping for and longing for and reaching for and, you know, grasping for, they're not going to find. And sometimes we say, how's that working out for you? How's that working for you? And really this phrase carries that kind of, that kind of suggestion from Jesus. Hey, friends, family, children, hey, family, how's that working for you? Now, does he know the answer? It's not worked well at all because they don't have what? They don't have any fish. They don't have anything to show for it. And he follows up with, they answer no, and he said to them, cast the net out on the right side of the boat, and there you will find some. Here's a real quick gospel application. Jesus always knows where we find what we're looking for, doesn't he? Doesn't Jesus always know exactly where we find what we're looking for? And the reality is, is we always find what we're looking for in obedience to his word which is what he's giving here. He's giving a word. Now, that might not seem like a Bible verse that we put on a, on a you know, greeting card to someone, cast your nets on the right side of the boat. I've never received that one as an encouragement letter, but the truth is, at the end of the word of Jesus is always what we're looking for in the soul of who we are and the desires of our heart. We find it always at the end of the words of Christ. And, and so he says, cast your net out to the right um, and they do, and, and we know that what happens there is, is that their, their net is filled with fish, and Jesus again uses this as a sign that they might see him with clarity and believe. In fact, it's this very interaction that John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, because of this interaction, empty nets all night long, cast your nets to the right, full of fish, John declares that is the Lord. It's the Lord. And Simon Peter responds. And I'm going to take a, a moment here to point out something. Some scholars and commentators believe that this little epilogue here, John 21, is actually included as a motivation to the church. Because as the church, do you know what our life is going to be consumed with? Fishing and feeding. The church of Jesus will always do the work of fishing and feeding. And if we know anything about this story 
empty nets, cast your net on the other side of the boat, filled to the point of almost breaking or up to capacity. We know that it's not the first time we've seen this story. Now, in the Gospel of John, it is the first time we've seen this story. We would have to go to another one of the Gospel accounts in Luke chapter 5 to see the parallel story of Jesus calling his first disciples. And in fact, um, I learned something that even caught myself off guard. I, I texted Trey earlier in, in this week and said a little Bible trivia for you. Um, in, John, in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus is, is uh, having this moment of calling the first disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and he invites Peter to cast his net out on the opposite side of the boat. Here's the trivia question. Was he, where was Jesus when he made this request? Was he standing on the dock? Was he on the seashore? Or was he in the boat with Peter? Now, I don't know if it's just my, the dramatized version of my mind and imagination or my lack of paying attention. But for some reason, I always feel like I've cast this picture of Jesus being on the seashore or on the bank or on the dock saying, cast out your net on the other side. But if we read Luke 5, we don't see that at all. In fact, Jesus had borrowed Peter's boat and gone out into the sea a little bit so that his voice could project to teach. And upon coming in, so you got to think of it, there's this guy yelling from the middle of the sea, scaring off all the fish. And upon coming in, he says, why don't you throw your net out again, Peter? And Peter, probably bamboozled by this request, says, we fished all night, we've caught nothing, but we'll do it. And he throws his net out again, and he fills his net to the point of it breaking. Why do I say that it's important to know where Jesus was in this story? Because this cast your net out request from the stranger on the shore had to be an aha moment. First time this happened, Jesus was saying, I'm going to make you fishers of men and that you can trust me to fulfill my request, to fill my, my um, expectation and to fill my declaration for you. You can trust me to do that even when I'm not in the boat with you. Now, hold on a second. The first time Jesus was in the boat, the second time he wasn't in the boat, he was a long way away, but the same truth was true for the disciples. This is why a lot of people believe that this is maybe an, uh, an indication of a commissioning to the church. As the church of Jesus, he's promised to be with us even if we know that he is risen and reigning in glory and not bodily present with us. He has, he has said that he will be with us. And as disciples who hadn't experienced the power of the Holy Spirit yet, that were still learning this, this was a foretaste to him saying, I'm going to be with you. You can trust my word whether you feel like I'm in the boat or not. Let's pause there a minute. You can trust him. You can trust him. And we're going to talk a, a moment later about the difference in the postures of, of Simon Peter as he experienced Jesus in Luke 5 and, and here in John 21 on the seashore both times. Um, but, but you can trust him even if it feels different today than it, feels at your, than it felt at your peak moment with Christ. You know, if you're thinking about some of the peak moments of, of Peter's spiritual journey, you'd be hard-pressed up until maybe this moment to find one that was more life-changing and more life-altering for him than the day that Jesus Christ was in his boat and he went from catching no fish to miraculously catching hundreds of fish at the drop of a hat. I bet that was a pretty um, 
life-changing moment for Simon Peter. But there are going to be times in your walk with Jesus that the truth of his presence will be the same, but the feeling you have as an obedient follower, as a believer, as a son and daughter, will feel different. There will be times that you feel removed. There will be times that you feel confused. There will be times that you feel um, overwhelmed, that you feel um, overcome. And what we are invited to trust when he says, you can trust me, whether I'm in the boat or not, you can trust me, is I don't want my spiritual journey or your spiritual journey to be about trusting just the peak moments of my faith with God. I want, to be, I want my spiritual journey and your spiritual journey to be about trusting the promise of the presence of God. We don't trust the peaks. We trust in his presence. And then we see Peter, after this, rush to shore. Um, rush to shore to meet Jesus. Actually putting on clothes, ironically, um, to dive into the lake and to run all the way to shore to meet Jesus. And then as this boat approaches the shore and these guys all come out, um, we see that they're invited to one of the most incredible breakfast dates in the history of the world. In fact, I like to take a moment here and just recount what's going on. The men that stepped out of that boat that day, the men whose, whose feet hit the sand and you know, grains of sand shot up between their toes, the men who um, finally hauled in 153 fish, those men, those ordinary men, changed the absolute world. That group of guys was part of the group of guys that the Holy Spirit used to change the world. And while those guys were certainly world changers, you might be hard-pressed to find one that was more of a world changer than Simon Peter. In fact, I've heard it said before that few people have fallen in greater unfaithfulness to God as Peter, and yet few have been so powerfully used by God as Peter. And that kind of brings us to the, to the, the second half of, of our time together today that's going to focus specifically on what it means to be redeemed and restored. Um, if you have ever experienced feeling like a failure, then John 21 is for you. If you ever experienced feeling like a mistake or a mess up, then John 21 is for you. If you've ever thought that your biggest mistake, your biggest shortcoming, your greatest struggle defines your life more than the grace of Jesus defines your life. If you've ever felt that way, even for a second, then John chapter 21 is for you. It is the declaration in the book of John that your failure and your shortcoming and your slip-up, and your shame, none of those things are beyond the far-reaching grasp of Jesus Christ and his restoration and his redemption. Somebody needs to hear that today. If I was in a room full of people, I would say, somebody give me an amen to that today. So if you're sitting at home, feel free to belt that out. Your failure never, ever, 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 not even for one second, ever pushed you beyond the reach of the grasp of the redemption and restoration of Jesus Christ. You might think you've done nothing but make a mess, but the Lord says you still have a ministry. And we're going to lean into that today. 
Jesus Christ, if he's in the business of anything, he's in the business of restoration and redemption. He's in the business of salvation. And in fact, this story in John 21 is a map at how we should restore and redeem people ourselves. There's people in our life that when they enter the room, the worst thing they've ever done enters with it. You know why? Because we're still, we still have a little bit of some cracks and some fractures in our lens. But because of the grace of Jesus, if we believe in Jesus, we don't enter a room that God sees us as our biggest mistake or our biggest failure. He only sees the work of his son. And so in the same way, we as lovers of sheep, which is what we're called to be as the church, fishers and feeders, as we mentioned earlier, we should restore and love and redeem people in the exact same way. You know, it's the end of the semester, and I don't think we did this in college, but I remember in high school, um, you almost feel like you campaigned for senior superlatives, and nobody would have ever voted Peter to be the most likely to succeed in his senior superlative, would they? You know, I I got a senior superlative um, my senior year of high school, Anderson County, shout out Bearcats, and that was that I was the most talkative. I think that was voted on by both my teachers and by my fellow classmates that I regularly disrupted class with a bit of a loud mouth. If you've noticed the length of my podcasts or sermons, you probably could amen that as well. But Peter would never have been voted the most likely to succeed unless we have John 21, right? John 21 is what gives us the understanding that Peter actually wasn't the most likely to succeed. He was guaranteed to. And just like Simon Peter... Jesus wants your story to have a chapter of redemption and restoration in your life. There are two kinds of people watching this today, actually. There are the kinds that they already have that chapter of restoration and redemption that you can point to and say, Jesus met me at my worst and he gave me his best. That he met me in my biggest mistake, and my biggest failure, my biggest slip up. When I felt the farthest, when I felt the most shame, he met me there. And he showered me and overwhelmed me with his grace. There are people that have that story. In fact, that is an ongoing story, an ongoing chapter that will always be written over my life and yours if you have it. But there are some people today that are watching this. Maybe this was shared with you. Maybe you stumbled on it. Maybe you call yourself... Uh, a regular here at Commonwealth City Church, there are some people that are watching this, that you've tried to craft a story with God and leave out a chapter where you're redeemed and restored. And that's not possible. You don't get a story with God without a John 21. And in the exact same way that God had this chapter in mind for Simon Peter, he has it in mind for all of us. We might not get a beachside breakfast with the resurrected Christ, but we do get our own chapter in our story of Jesus meeting with us and redeeming us with a restoration that's made possible only by his finished work on the cross. We too get a 21st chapter of John. Now we see Peter in this moment eager to get to Jesus. In fact, he's the first one to get to him by the seashore. We know that Peter's story is the one that limps with comparison. If we look throughout the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that Peter is always in a 
in a battle of comparison with, with many of those that he's beside. He's competing for where to sit. He's competing for how to lead. He's saying, I'll never, I will never forsake you. I'll never betray you. He, I heard a, a one pastor friend say that he starts strong and finishes weak almost every single time. His zeal carries him to Jesus, but it doesn't impress Jesus. Peter's zeal does not impress Jesus. And we know that because he immediately calls him out. That should be a reminder to us. Our zeal, our effort, our sense that we can earn Jesus' affection or attention, they don't impress him. He's not impressed. And that's a good truth for our hearts to hear. What he's impressed with is our need for him. What he's impressed with is our desperation. What he's impressed with is actually our acknowledgement of our weakness, so that in our weakness, he might be strong. I don't know about you, but when it comes to the gospel of Jesus, never one day in my life have I ever improved it? Have I ever brought any improvement to the gospel, the good news of Jesus? I've never brought improvement to the table. And yours story hasn't either. But you know what I have brought to the table? I've brought my shortcoming. I've brought my doubts. I've brought my impatience. I've brought my failures to the table. But Jesus is so incredibly good at redemption that he invites me to sit there anyway. Thankfully, the salvation of the world didn't depend on Simon Peter's effort. And it doesn't depend on yours and on mine. It depends on Jesus. He's the only one that will never let any of us down. And we get to this encounter. Now, some pastors have said that Peter and Jesus go off for a walk. Well, the problem is the text doesn't say that. In fact, you're led to believe that right there as they're sitting, I don't know, Indian style or sprawled out right there on the beach eating breakfast. He moves right into the next conversation in front of the other guys that Peter was with. And he says to him, when they have finished eating breakfast in verse 15, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And we're not exactly sure what these are. Uh, a lot of commentators believe that these might be the, the nets and the fishing attire and the things. Do you love me more than the what you used to find an identity in. Um, it could have also played to his comparison to some of the other apostles that were around him. Do you love me more than these do? And he responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says to him, then feed my lambs. Then he asked for a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, then tend my sheep. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he asked him a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And he said, then feed my sheep. Now, some people think that you might have really gone into the, the precept study of this and noticed that Jesus uses different words. There's, there's multiple words for love in the Greek language. It's phileo, agape, eros. And Jesus uses uh, agape, do you love me? And Peter replies back, yes, you know I love you, phileo. And, and you might be saying that, Peter was, you know, not fully meeting Jesus with the same kind of love. Um, perhaps if that application speaks to you, uh, then, then it does. And I think that there's room for that. Um, but the, the rest of the Gospel of John, and with, with really with diligence to the authorship of this letter, we see those loves used interchangeably throughout the text. And, and I think that the emphasis here is on Jesus, Peter saying yes. He's saying yes to Jesus asking him the question, do you agape me? And he's saying yes, even though he uses 
another kind of word. And so I'm not going to spend a ton of time um, really diving into the specific language that Peter and, and Simon Peter use, but I am going to really point our attention to the fact that he does it three times. He does it three times. Why does he do it three times? Because it was three times that Peter denied Jesus. Now, now there's a, two things there that I want to look at. Number one is Jesus, while he forgives, may lead us into repentance for all the times that we fall short. He would lead us into repentance to acknowledge the places that we were weak, that we were inadequate, that we failed. Now, he doesn't lead us there in shame or in guilt, but he leads us there in restoration and redemption, which is what you see him doing with Simon Peter. And the second thing is, is he asked him a question, do you love me? Present tense. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever wronged someone, or I've ever, or ever been wronged, so I've both wronged people and been wronged, when I've been the most wronged, my question is, did they really love me when they did that thing to me? Did they really love me when they did the thing that hurt me or that harmed me? Or maybe it's even been asked of me or you do. Did you really love me? If you really loved me, you wouldn't have done A, B, C, X, Y, Z. You might have had some conversations with people um, as both the recipient of harm or the, the, the one that's, that's causing harm where the question is asked past tense. When you committed that action, did you love me? That's not how Jesus addresses Peter. Was Jesus aware of the moments that Peter denied Christ? Of course he was. But he didn't say to him, now Peter, let's go back to that campfire. Did you really love me then? He looked at him right in the eyes and said, do you love me? Because Jesus always meets us in our present. He doesn't hang out in our past. In fact, if we know the grace of Jesus Christ, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know that his work fully covers our past so that he can meet us in our present. Not, did you love me, but do you love me? And then there's this moment at the third question where Peter grows frustrated. He grows frustrated. He actually says in the text that he was grieved at the fact that he asked him a third time, do you love me? And his answer is different the third time, isn't it? Lord, you know everything. We could draw a big circle around that in our Bibles. You know everything. Bingo. That's a bingo moment. That might be the entire revelation or clarity of Jesus was for us for the moment where Peter acknowledged, Jesus, you know everything. You know everything. We need that too. We need to acknowledge, Jesus, you know everything. And you know this too, that I love you. That I love you. You know everything. And because you know everything, my love for you comes as an overflow of in spite of all the things about me that you know and you're aware of, that you still love me. And then at the very end of this time together, Jesus says to Peter, um, he includes the, the death that he's going to die. We see this in verse 18 and 19. Truly I say to you, one day you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. And then John provides the parentheses in verse 19. This was said to show what kind of death he would die to glorify God. And we know that Peter was crucified as a martyr of Jesus later in his life and ministry. And Jesus actually foretells that right here in this gospel account. 
And at the conclusion of saying, you're going to die someday, Peter. You're going to be crucified. He says, as my seminary professor used to say, in a familiar northern Galilean accent, same two words, follow me all the way to your death. Follow me all the way to your death. Feeding the lambs and fishing for those to be brought into the family of God are called to follow him all the way to our death. And when Jesus reminds Peter to feed the lambs, it's the same reminder that he gives us. Feed his sheep, tend his flock, care for those that are right in our path, and to follow him in doing that all the way to our death. Now I'm going to give you some big picture takeaways from this text as we conclude. Luke chapter 5 paints the picture we mentioned earlier of Peter in response to Jesus telling him to cast his nets on the other side of the boat and the nets breaking. It says that he responds by falling at his feet and by proclaiming that Jesus should actually run away from Peter because he is a sinful man. So cast your nets, nets full, and upon his recognition that Jesus is somebody different, he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. But what does his posture look like in John 21? He doesn't fall on his face. He runs to Christ. Do you know what that tells me? That the gospel and the understanding of the gospel had begun to massage its way into Peter's heart. I hope that your story and my story are filled with more confident running to Jesus in spite of our shortcomings than it is falling away and feeling undeserving of the of the outreached grasp and arm of the gracious God we serve. I hope our life is defined by our confidence and our identity that in spite of our sin, that we belong at breakfast with Jesus. He knows something about the truth of Jesus in John 21 that he didn't know in John 20. And I hope that's our story. I hope that's our story. That's a sign that we are fed well. In fact, as, as we are people that, like Peter, feed sheep, it's this truth that's really important that we're feeding people. When Jesus says, Peter, feed my sheep, tend my flock, tend my sheep, feed my lambs, when he says this voc vocabulary to him, do you know what, what, what really the thing that we are to feed each other with? It's truth. We're to feed each other with truth. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says that we speak the truth to one another in love. That means it requires us to say and speak the truth of God and the truth of the gospel to one another with regularity. If we do that, we like Peter will look more like John 21 than we will look like Luke 5. There will be a nourishment in our souls if what we dine on is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then I want to paint one more picture here for us. In um, Verse 9 of John 21, it says, When they got on land, these disciples, these world-changing guys, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Charcoal fire. Now, Kurt mentioned this a number of weeks ago when he preached um, on the denial of Jesus by Peter, that he was standing around a charcoal fire. And this is one of the beautiful details 
about our Savior, King Jesus. That Jesus is so much about restoration that he even restores our accompanying sensory observations. You ever been around a charcoal fire? It has a very distinct smell. In fact, I always talk about, uh, I love to cook, I love to be outside, I love to grill, and, and there's many times that I find myself around a grill. Um, and, and in doing so, if you're around a grill for a long time, you start to smell like a grill. I refer to it as the cologne of manhood. It's kind of what a charcoal grill gives off. I just feel very like, ugh, like super testosterone. I smell, I reek of charcoal fire. And so if you know the smell of charcoal fire, uh, you know exactly what we're talking about. It's not coincidental at all that Jesus mentions, or John mentions this charcoal fire here in John 21, because it's the same charcoal fire. The only other time it's mentioned is Peter's betrayal. If there is a trigger, here's the truth of this. If there is a trigger in your life that reminds you of your greatest shame, then Jesus wants to redeem even that. If there's a trigger in your life that reminds you of your greatest shortcoming or blunder or failure, then he wants to meet you even there. The thing that once reminded you of distance from him, he wants to redeem that so you're reminded that that's a place you found grace. Charcoal fire for Peter was once a place of shame, and now that smell accompanies fragrance. That fragrance accompanies, I know that's the smell of grace now. Charcoal fire, once the smell of shame, now the smell of grace. Whatever triggers accompany your greatest shame, Jesus wants to exchange fragrance of shame for the fragrance of grace. And he wants to invite you to the best breakfast ever. This beachside breakfast with Jesus and Simon Peter is a reminder that God is never, ever, 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 ever tired of inviting you to the truth of the gospel. Ever. He's never tired of it. You can't sin tomorrow and him be like, I am done with them. They have heard it enough. He is never, ever, ever tired of extending grace to you. In fact, that's the very reason that he came and died. He never grows weary or is never exhausted by our desperate need for him. He's never overwhelmed by it, ever. That's the good news of Jesus. And when our work and our effort is fruitless and offers nothing to sustain us, when just like the guys in the boat, we fish all night and our nets are empty, when our work is fruitless and offers nothing to sustain us, when all we have are empty nets and empty hearts, Jesus has breakfast ready for you. And he has breakfast ready for me. It's always on the table. And no matter how fruitless or faithless you feel, or your life or your decisions have been, you are always invited to breakfast with your king. And as we conclude today, I just want to ask you this question. It's going to be simpler than most of the questions we ask at the conclusion of a sermon. Is anybody hungry? Then let's eat breakfast with our king. And let's drink deeply and dine fully on the incredible reach of his gracious work of redemption 
and restoration. And let's never be tired in positioning ourselves to receive grace and redemption from Jesus. Just like Simon Peter, let's acknowledge the chapters in our story where we thought shame was our banner and grace met us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for being a God that meets us in our sin and our shame. We thank you so much for being a God um, that sets a table for us in the presence of our enemies, as you would write on Psalm 23. In the presence of all the things that oppose us and even the things that oppose us because of our own decision-making, you prepare a table for us, and we see that visibly here on the shore, shore side in Galilee. Jesus, thank you for always meeting us with grace, with restoration, and with redemption at the work of your hands. Father, today I pray for people here that, that need to experience a story, a chapter of redemption in their story. I pray that they find that today in you. I pray that they pray a prayer for the first time that says, I want to be redeemed. I want to be restored. I want to acknowledge your work, Jesus. I want to confess that all these places I fell short, and I want to spend the rest of my days chasing after you. I pray that they pray a prayer of belief, of acknowledgement, of your gracious and redemptive work on the cross and your victory over the grave. And Jesus, for those of us that have journeyed with you for a while, I pray that you take us back to the chapter in our story where redemption and restoration rang loudest and remind us that you never get tired of setting the table for us to experience your truth and experience your grace. In your holy and precious name, we pray these things. Amen.